We are also glad to welcome our guest preacher this morning, my colleague, the Reverend Christina Church from Pennsylvania, a close colleague of mine, also from Pennsylvania, suggested we give her a listen. And with the wonders of Zoom technology at our disposal, I got right on it. Reverend Church will be telling us about one of our most colorful universalist forebears, the Reverend Abner Neeland, the last person tried and convicted of blasphemy in 1830s Massachusetts. Join me in welcoming to our pulpit, Reverend Christina Church. I recently attended a social justice conference in which I was asked to name and call on my ancestors for assistance in finding courage, courage to speak out against injustice, courage to voice my truth or to take a strong position based on our Unitarian Universalist values. Well, this extremely useful practice can be befuddling to me. You see, my ancestors were apparently not the sort to keep good records. <laughs> In fact, I often tell people that rather than a family tree, what I seem to have inherited is more of a family tumbleweed. <laughs> People who were traveling all over the place, doing all sorts of things, but who are lost to us now. Their names, their activities, their life stories. And as a military kid growing up, I didn't even feel a connection to a hometown or to its history for many, many years. So as I traveled the path of of Unitarian Universalism, I find it useful to find spiritual ancestors, folks who, whose lives and whose courage I can call on whenever I need strength and support. And so today I want to share one of those spiritual ancestors with you, the Reverend Abner Neeland. Now, Abner comes from the Universalist side of our history a tradition brought to the U.S. from England hundreds of years ago. The Universalists believed that a loving God would never send anyone, not even the worst human, to eternal punishment in hell. Now, as nice as this concept sounds to our modern ears, it's important to remember a couple of things. First, the Universalists were seen as frightening and radical by many more mainstream Christian denominations who were just sure that without hell, everybody would just go sinning up and down and sideways. Now, second, while Universalists had some very lovely beliefs that seem pretty basic to us today, not all of them lived out those values with integrity. Many universalists were owners of enslaved people, for example. Or in the North, they saw no problem owning mills, which produced textiles made out of cotton produced and picked by those who were enslaved. Now, finally, many Black theologians of that time 
also had trouble with the idea of a loving God who sent both enslaved persons and those who did the enslaving to the same heaven without any sense of retribution. So I want us to keep those things in mind as we think about the times of Reverend, Reverend Abner Neeland. But into this world of sin and redemption, he was born a few years before the American Revolution. And he was a brilliant but self-educated man. He was a school teacher who became a Baptist preacher in his family's religious tradition. And his early life was just going along quite swimmingly for Abner until he got hold of a book about universalism. And this book, this book about a loving God that would never send anyone to hell, sets Abner on fire. And pretty soon his Baptist congregation in New England starts to notice that he's He's preaching some pretty non-Baptisty ideas from their pulpit. So Abner gets into hot water with his congregation. Now this will not be the first time, the last time that Abner gets into hot water over theology. So stay tuned. This time though, it all turns out okay for him. It just happens that Hosea Blue, the most famous universalist in the country, happens to be riding through town at the time. And there just happens to be a nice little universalist church over by the way. And he slides pretty easily out of the frying pan and into a pretty good situation in a new pulpit. And everybody's happy for a while. And then Abner goes and reads another darn book. This one is about biblical scholarship, which is just starting to be a big thing in the early 1800s. And some doubts start to creep into Abner's mind. Doubts about the authenticity of the Holy Scripture. Doubts about the divinity of Jesus. So Abner, brilliant guy that he is, you know what he does? He teaches himself koina the ancient Greek language in which the Gospels are written. And he gets a hold of the text and reads it in the original language for himself. Now he's even more uncertain. But here's one of the things that I really love about Abner Neeland. I'm pretty sure he was not a poker player. Abner just could not. He was... He was incapable of keeping his true beliefs and values to himself, no matter what the cost. He had a kind of honesty, a kind of daring integrity that prompted him to live his beliefs out loud, no matter how ill-prepared the world was to receive them. So here's what happened. Abner and Hosea Ballou carried on this long, meticulous correspondence all about theology and, and, and biblical inerrancy. And eventually, Hosea, in his ultimate wisdom and his unshakable faith in the scripture, convinces Abner in these letters that all his doubts are just phantoms 
And so Abner is prevailed upon to take it all back. And everybody was happy for a while. But eventually, it happens again. It becomes clear that Abner is way off message, even for the Universalists. Now, by this time, he's serving a larger congregation in New York City. And they are not happy at all with his open-minded and questioning attitude towards the Bible. So this time, they convince him to resign. Now, it wasn't just his theology by this time that was getting him into hot water. You see, Abner's politics were also quite radical. For example, he believed that people should stay married only as long as they were happy in their union and that they should be allowed to leave their marriages if they were no longer viable. He also advocated marriage between people of different races if they loved one another. He supported education about the reproductive system and how it works, along with access to the birth control methods that were available at the time in the 1830s. Now, by this time, the Universalists had had more than enough of the Reverend Abner Neeland. They, they couldn't allow this heretical member to confirm all the awful things that the public already thought about Universalism. By 1830, they were done playing around, and, and Abner's old friend, Hosea Ballou, drew up papers removing him from the ministry for good. After this humiliation, it was time for Abner to make a new start. And so he moved to Boston and started a newspaper, the Boston Investigator. He also started a new organization called the First Society of Free Inquirers. Now, this was a free-thinking organization that was open to those of many different beliefs. Sound familiar? He was attracting crowds of thousands during this time. In addition to assemblies on Sunday that resembled worship services, his organization sponsored equally popular social events, such as dances on weeknights. And at these gatherings that were attended by hundreds of people, mostly from the working classes, refreshments were served, but no alcohol because Abner did not drink and did not believe in it. Children were encouraged to attend along with their parents, and the goal was to encourage healthy social behavior and to enjoy music and dancing and good company. By all accounts, these gatherings were sober, dignified, and wholesome events. Proceeds were directed towards the poor. Now, was it his association with radical reformers and their encouragement of fraternization amongst the races and the classes? Or was it these large gatherings of the working poor organized as circles of free thinkers encouraged to seek equity in labor and social relations. 
Was that what became Abner's downfall? Or was it really his theological statements such as this one in the Boston Investigator for which he was arrested and tried for blasphemy? And we heard that reading earlier. I'll read it again for you. I believe in the existence of a universe of suns and planets, among which there is one sun belonging to our planetary system, but that other suns being more remote are called stars. Indeed, they are suns to other planetary systems. I believe that the whole of the universe is nature and that the word nature embraces the whole universe and that God and nature, so far as we can attach any rational idea to either, are perfectly synonymous terms. Other suns are called stars, but they are indeed suns to other planetary systems. This is another thing I love about Abner Neeland. Remember, this was back in the 1830s. He was able to use his imagination and he used it to decenter himself. He could have envisioned other worlds. <laughs> he was a white male. He was born to privilege, if not wealth. But he was able to imagine worlds in which others, less fortunate, could lead lives of dignity and equity. And he had the courage to talk about that at a time when not many people did. Well, what happened next is that Abner Neeland was arrested and tried for blasphemy. And it all came down to this passage in one of his published writings. Universalists believe in a God which I do not, but believe that their God with all his moral attributes aside from nature itself is nothing more than a chimera of their own imagination. There were five trials in all, and here's a snippet from one prosecutor's statement. If Neeland was found innocent, he claimed, Marriages will be dissolved. Prostitution will be made easy and safe. Moral and religious restraints will be removed. Property will be invaded. And the foundations of society broken up. In his own defense, Abner called on the principle of free speech stating that his innocence rested on a ground as broad as space and as solid as a rock of ages, the American Constitution's Bill of Rights. But you can also feel his very real fear of incarceration in which, in other sections in which he pleads to the court that he's an old man with young children, and he asks to be released from the specter of jail time. But unfortunately, he was convicted, and eventually he served over a month in jail. During Neelan's imprisonment, another spiritual ancestor, William Ellery Channing, from our Unitarian side, assembled a petition calling for Neelan's release. 
based on those protections of the Constitution regarding freedom of speech. And several leading Unitarians, including Theodore Parker, Ralph Waldo Emerson, William Lloyd Garrison, and Bronson Alcott, all signed that petition. The Universalists, however, did not. Neelan's old friend and colleague, Hosea Ballou, did visit him in jail out of a sense of Christian duty, but was unwilling to advocate for his release. Well, Abner was never quite the same after his imprisonment. Who would be? He began to dream about getting away from the East while he was in jail. He began to envision a a more free utopian community of free thinkers out West, which he would call Salubria, headed, of course, by himself and his friends. He started drawing up the plans for that community while he was in the jail. Maybe it was a pleasant distraction from his humiliating situation. Well, Abner, indefatigable as always, did move out to Iowa, which was the out west of the time, and he began working to make this little spot on the map a town. But, as ever, poor Abner was beset with troubles, hounded by a group of reactionaries called the Iowa Band, who prevented him from running for office and harassed the people of Salubria. And so in the end, not much permanent ever came of that dream either. Salubria faded away a few years after its founder died at the age of 70. Abner Neeland's flamboyant life and his tragicomic misfortunes make him easy to dismiss as a shameless attention seeker or an intellectual lightweight. But in truth, he was none of those things. In fact, Abner was committed to reason and inquiry as vehicles for understanding our world. And he used his considerable mental gifts to understand the scientific thought of his time and to question, to question the social and religious conventions that most people were afraid to examine critically. Abner's mind, far from being weak, was strong enough not to allow him to look away from the places where his star of truth led him. And he had the courage to declare his convictions, no matter how unorthodox, and then to act on them. Abner Neeland worked for inclusion and greater rights for all. He took on some of the most intractable conventions of his day and fought the powers that be who sought to continue the status quo. Even though he met resistance and punishment, he never abandoned his ideals. After hearing some of his story, I hope that you'll agree with me that that rather than being a joke or a footnote in our history, Abner Neeland deserves an honored place in the story of Unitarian Universalism. And when we are faced with a situation that asks us to speak out or to act on our values, 
I hope that we can remember a spiritual ancestor like the Reverend Abner Neeland. Our task now is to continue that legacy by being bold like Abner in imagining that better and more inclusive world. And then like Abner, having the courage and the fortitude to to roll up our sleeves and build that way together.